Flight is a film released in 2013 about a commuter airline pilot uh, played by Denzel Washington. Uh, the pilot's name is Whip Whitaker. And Whip struggles with a cocaine and alcohol addiction. On a flight to Atlanta, his aircraft develops mechanical problems. And Whip, against all odds, skillfully crash lands the plane, saving the lives of 96 people on board. Only six people lose their lives. In spite of Whip's blood test revealing a drastically elevated level of alcohol and cocaine, uh, his lawyer manages to get the results quashed on a technicality. Nevertheless, uh, Whip still has to face a National Transport and Safety Board hearing. In preparation for the hearing, uh, his lawyer confines Whip to a hotel room in the days running up to the hearing in an attempt to keep Whip sober. The night before the hearing, Whip discovers that the door into the adjacent room in his hotel has been left unlocked by the cleaners. And we join him now as he discovers the minibar in the adjacent room. Will he have the power to resist? The next morning, a Whip's lawyer comes to the room with a coffee. They open the door, and they find the room totally trashed, Whip unconscious on the floor in the toilet with an injury to his head. Whip's story graphically portrays the struggle of a man in the grip of an alcohol addiction. And alcohol, we see, has the power a power over him that he cannot escape from. And this power is slowly destroying him. Uh, you may ask, why are we having a sermon on this issue this morning? Uh, may I put to you that there is a spectrum of alcohol usage. And each of us is somewhere on that spectrum. Now, at one end, there are those who have absolutely no interest in alcohol. 
There's no allure. There's no attraction. They don't touch it. And this is not an issue for them. At the other end of the spectrum are those who have a chronic dependence on alcohol. It's a potent and destructive force in their lives, and they need real intervention just to live a functional life. Some of us here today will be those who have no interest in alcohol whatsoever. Equally, there may be some here today for whom alcohol is a chronic problem. We know, of course, alcoholism isn't often something that is not externally evident. But for most of us, I suspect we are somewhere in the middle. Uh, we enjoy a drink. It has a place in the fabric of our lives. And the questions that then arise are these. Can we say there is no danger that our alcohol usage may at times slip into the unhealthy terrain? Another question. When we look at our lives and our hearts, is it possible that we may sometimes feel, hey, something is not quite right in this area of my life? You see, Satan is seeking to pull us down in any way he can. He seeks to trip us up, and he seeks to discredit us in the eyes of the world. And alcohol is one of the things he can use to do that. Therefore, if you consume alcohol to whatever degree, I think it is important that we take the time this morning to think through this issue from a biblical perspective. And if you're someone who does not consume alcohol, then it's still worthwhile you thinking this issue through biblically. For then, you are more equipped to understand the issue and to be of help to others. Uh, let me give you a heads up uh, on where we're going to go this morning. Uh, firstly, we're going to think about the nature of alcohol. For we need to acknowledge that alcohol is, is both a destructive power, but a, also a good gift of God. Uh, secondly, then we're going to dig down and we're going to understand alcohol better. Uh, how does it work and, and what is its attraction? Finally, uh, we'll consider how we can respond wisely to alcohol. We're going to think about its spiritual dangers and what practical steps we can take to manage it wisely. So firstly, uh, the nature of alcohol. Well, I'm sure I don't need to convince you by now that alcohol is a powerful, destructive force. Uh, the evidence of that is all around us in our society. Indigenous communities have been blighted by it. King's Cross and areas in our inner cities where there are nightclubs and bars have experienced levels of violence and injury which have been horrendously high. Uh, you'll know, of course, that recently uh, the state government in New South Wales has therefore uh, brought in the lockout legislation in a bid to try and limit the consumption of alcohol after a certain time, in a bid to reduce the level of this problem. Uh, you'll also know if you're in contact with social media or the news, that uh, Mike Baird at the moment is under particular pressure from a lobby and promotion of the consumption of alcohol to rescind the legislation on lockouts. And we need to pray for him to have wisdom at this time. Alcohol is a destructive power. It's torn apart marriages, families, friendships, and communities. And alcohol has destroyed people's health. 
And this is not a new problem. Take your Bibles, you only have to go as far as the ninth chapter of the Bible to see the problem rearing its ugly head. No less than Noah. Uh, he plants a vineyard, uh, and then drinks some of the wine, and he gets totally and utterly wellied. First case, he may have been, but last, he certainly was not. As time went by, and the nation of Israel was established, alcohol became quite a problem in the life of the nation. Uh, the issue of alcohol gets significant airtime in the book of Proverbs, as we saw in one of our Bible readings. Another example from Proverbs is Proverbs 21, verse 1, which warns us that, and I quote, wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Sadly, the warnings fell on deaf ears. The prophet Isaiah gives an insight into the drinking culture of ancient Israel, and it wasn't pretty. Isaiah 5, verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. And in fact, the problem also affected the leaders of Israel. Isaiah 28, verse 7. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. Well, Given all this negativity about alcohol, it would be tempting to conclude, hey, this is inherently evil. It's something which Christians should have absolutely nothing to do with. But that is not necessarily the case. You see, alcohol is not something that Satan has smuggled into God's good creation. Alcohol is actually part of God's good creation. God made it. At 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The psalmist acknowledges a positive role for wine as part of God's good provision for life. Psalm 104, verse 14, he makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. The Apostle Paul even prescribes it medicinally for his understudy Timothy. 1 Timothy 5 verse 23. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Unless we forget, uh, Jesus himself turned 180 gallons of water into a limited edition vintage wine at the wedding in Cana. So, you see, uh, we can't say that alcohol is inherently evil, although we do acknowledge that it can be used for evil. We know that Satan seeks to distort our use of God's goods gifts. We know that Satan wants to turn the good things into ultimate things so that they become destructive idols in our hearts. I'm sure that some of you will have experienced the hurt and the damage 
of alcohol at the hands of a drunken spouse or parent or friend or even in your own struggles. And in the face of such pain, I am wary of stressing too much the goodness of alcohol. However, to have a balanced biblical perspective, we do need to remember that alcohol is not in and of itself evil. But it can sometimes be used, of course, for evil and destructive ends. So, uh, we've thought about the nature of alcohol. Let's move on. Let's now understand it better. Let's understand how it works and how it attracts. How does alcohol work? Well, alcohol is a drug. Uh, A drug is a chemical that alters or mimics chemical reactions in the brain, and that is what alcohol does. Uh, Drugs are classified into three groups according to the ways they affect the brain. There are stimulants, hallucinogens, and depressants. Uh, A stimulant, uh, like caffeine, nicotine. Stimulants speed up messages to and from the brain. They speed them up. Uh, Hallucinogens confuse messages to and from the brain. They cause hallucinations. And depressants, which is what alcohol is, slows down messages to and from the brain. So chemically, alcohol is a depressant. It's not to say that it makes us depressed, although that may be one of the side effects, but it means it slows down messages to and from the brain. Uh, Therefore, what are the causes of alcohol? Uh, It causes sedation and sleepiness. It causes feelings of uh, well-being and euphoria. Uh, It causes a loss of sensation, uh, lower anxiety, pain reduction, uh, decreased heart and respiration rates. What is the attraction of it? What is the attraction of alcohol? Uh, People use alcohol for a whole number of reasons. They enjoy it for a whole number of reasons. And these commonly include the following. uh, To feel confident about themselves. Or to loosen up and to feel free of their usual inhibitions. Or to escape and to forget their problems. Or to be accepted by a group of people. uh, To increase their enjoyment of other people and to be sociable. Or to relax to chill out, or to feel happy, to have fun, to get sleep, even to relieve boredom. And for young people in particular, maybe to feel grown up, or to be rebellious, or to copy role models and people that they respect. So that's how alcohol works, and also that's why it is attractive Having seen that, let's now move on to think about how we can respond to it wisely. Uh, The starting point for understanding the spiritual danger of of alcohol is to go back and to ask this most fundamental question. What is our life all about? Why were we created? What should our life be all about? And we know, of course, we are created by God for God. We're created to live for Him and to bring Him glory and to enjoy Him. You will be familiar with those words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which capture it beautifully. 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And this means that if everything is as it should be in our lives, God will be at the very center of every sphere of our life. At 1 Corinthians 10, we looked at it for the kids' talk. Uh, It bears looking at again. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And you see, in various ways, alcohol can undermine that key objective of life. If we let it, alcohol can master us. If we let it, our enjoyment of alcohol may bring us to the point where it has an unhealthy hold over us. And it can start to control our life in such a way that it hinders us living for God's glory. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 talks of the danger of anything mastering us. Look at verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You see, alcohol can become an idol which starts to have mastery over us. Alcohol can start to rewire the neuropathways of our mind so that we start to believe, hey, this can give me ultimate happiness. And as you will know if you've experienced it, being under control of something in our lives like an idol, it's not a comfortable place to be for a Christian. Because then we know Satan has a foothold in our life. And then we know he can use it to trip us up, to discredit the gospel, and ultimately to tarnish God's glory through us. Uh, This can happen in a number of ways. Uh, Let's look at some of the ways in which the Bible specifically says that alcohol can trip us up as Christians. Firstly, uh, eroding self-control. As God's people, we honor God and we bring Him glory by leading Christ-honoring, self-controlled lives. That Galatians 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Yet there comes a point where alcohol may undermine our self-control. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Uh, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. So you see, alcohol is spiritually dangerous if it undermines our self-control, either of what we say or what we do. Uh, Secondly, another danger area. It may be an unhealthy coping mechanism. As God's children, God calls us to turn to Him when we're under stress when we're anxious, at 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Yet as we've seen, in times of stress, some Christians may be tempted to turn to alcohol rather than to God. For some people, alcohol is their coping mechanism amidst the pressures of life. And as a depressant, alcohol does dull the perception of reality 
And yet, of course, the reality does not actually change. And the danger is, as Christians, we shortchange ourselves rather than looking to God for His strength and His enabling amidst our stresses, we turn instead to alcohol. And in so doing, we deprive ourselves of a deeper work of God in our lives. And in so doing, we miss out on a deeper experience of God. So, another spiritual danger of alcohol is becoming an unhealthy coping mechanism. Thirdly, another danger is that it brings us to the point where we are conforming to the world. As God's people, we honor God, we bring Him glory by leading different lives, lives which are countercultural, lives which are gospel-shaped, lives which don't just go with the flow of the non-Christian world around us. At Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, sometimes there can be great peer pressure to, to conform to the pattern of this world when it comes to alcohol. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. If you've been a non-drinker amongst a group of people who are drinking on a social occasion... There is a strange syndrome which can sometimes operate in that situation. The drinkers actually feel very uncomfortable that they have a non-drinker in their midst. And strangely, they can not only feel uncomfortable, they can actually start to put pressure on the person who's not drinking to drink. They can even get hostile to them. And so there is this danger sometimes, in whatever means, that we get pressure, peer pressure, to conform to go with the flow, and in so doing, the danger is that we conform our lives to the pattern of this world, not to the gospel. Uh, fourthly, another danger is that alcohol can cause us to fail to care for others. As God's people, we honor God and we bring Him glory by living other-person-centered lives. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 24 Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Yet, if alcohol has a great sway over us, if it's become an idol in our lives, we may become more preoccupied with serving our idol than being sensitive to the needs of others around us. At Romans 14, verse 21. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or your sister to fall. So you see, there is the spiritual danger that alcohol may cause us to be insensitive to the sensitivities of others. And we note how serious God takes this issue of alcohol when we look at the criteria for church leadership. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Uh, now the overseer, which is the equivalent of a minister, must be above reproach, or elder, that is, not given to drunkenness. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Uh, deacons, the equivalent of people on the committee of management, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine. Do you see? 
anyone in a position of leadership in the church must be, must be above reproach when it comes to this issue of alcohol. So, we thought of some of the spiritual dangers of alcohol as we, in terms of managing it wisely. Let's conclude by thinking about how then practically we can manage it wisely. And the first thing is uh, to assess and to be honest. If as Christians we do enjoy God's good gift of alcohol, we have the responsibility to look at our hearts and our lives and to make sure that a good thing has not become an ultimate thing. The first step is to be to honestly assess our alcohol consumption and to ask, hey, is there a cause for concern here? Uh, the following diagnostic questions may be helpful ones to ask ourselves. Here they are. Have you ever felt you should cut down on your drinking? Have people annoyed you by criticizing your drinking? Have you ever felt bad or guilty about your drinking? Within the last six weeks, have you felt the need for a drink? Uh, within the last six weeks, have you started drinking and been unable to stop? Have you been worried that alcohol might not be available when you want it? Uh, as Christians, we need to ask the following questions. Is alcohol eroding my self-control? Uh, am I using alcohol as an unhealthy coping mechanism? Is alcohol causing me to conform to the pattern of this world? Is alcohol causing me to be insensitive to the sensitivities of others? Is alcohol causing me to be a poor ambassador for the gospel? Is God's glory being tarnished through my use of alcohol? So the first area is to assess and be honest. The second is to pray for God's help. If we do find there is cause for concern, then the next step is to seek God's help. You see, the growth of alcohol sway over our life, it can be very gradual. It can be very subtle. And we may not realize how powerful it has grown until we try to rein it in. And we may find that it is something that we can't break out of in our own strength. Uh, in Ephesians 5, uh, the prescription for a problem with alcohol is this, a deeper filling of God's Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What's it getting at? What's it getting at? Actually, encapsulated in, in this verse, we have the formula for dealing with an idol. Uh, you'll be familiar, I'm sure, with the famous quote of the Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers. He said this, The only way to dispossess the heart of a bad affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. You see what he's saying? How do we expel the idol of alcohol from the throne of our hearts? By having a greater affection, a greater love, 
and a greater heart for God. And that is the Spirit's work. And so that's where we start. We plead with God's Spirit, please fill me more. We ask, please give me a deeper experience of God and a greater passion for God. We pray, please, Holy Spirit, bring the truth that I read in God's Word alive in my heart. Please enable that truth to shine within me. And we pray, please, Holy Spirit, give me wisdom in this area of life. Give me the power to resist. Give me wisdom to know how best to move forward. So, we start by looking at our lives, being honest. Secondly, we pray for God's help. Thirdly, we get support. Alcohol can have a powerful hold over us. And we need God's help, but we also need the help of others. And that may mean that we are honest with our spouse or a trusted friend. Somebody can pray with us, somebody who can keep track of as to how we're going. And who can say to us, hey, how are you tracking in this area? It may mean that we actually need professional help, professional counseling in this area. If we try to fight the demon and the idol of alcohol on our own, we will in all likelihood fail. So we admit, or we pray, we get support, and fourthly, uh, we act. We need to think, what do I need to change? We need to think, what corrective course of action is necessary? We need to look at ourselves and we need to say, how do I function as a human being? We need to try and get a greater self-understanding of ourselves. How do we function? What are our weaknesses? What are the things we struggle with? And we need to ask this question. What is driving this desire I have for alcohol? Uh, is it boredom? Is it stress? Is it anger? Is it fear? And then we need to ask, okay, what do I need to change in my life? What needs to flow out of this? What is the root cause if it is boredom? How can I inject some new variety into my life? How can I be proactive in this area? If it's stress, how can I turn to God and find help when I face stresses or anxieties in my life? Another practical question to ask is this. What limits do I need to put on myself in terms of my alcohol consumption? Maybe set a number of days per week, which are alcohol-free days. And maybe also say, okay, when I do drink, what number of units of alcohol am I going to limit myself to? We may even need to say, hey, maybe I need to give up alcohol altogether. Maybe before God, I need to become teetotal. So, we've thought practically what it looks like to manage alcohol wisely. The last and practical point we'll consider as we close is this. How can we instill this wisdom into our kids? Because we do not want to see the next generation corrupted by alcohol. We don't want to see it ruining their precious lives. 
if we are parents, we need to ask this question. How can we prepare our kids to be wise in this area of alcohol? Now, some parents uh, pursue a line of abstinence. They say to their kids, uh, when you come of age, avoid alcohol altogether. But when you think about it, that doesn't really work. When the kids are of age or when they're being pressured by peers or whether they're curious about alcohol, just saying to them, don't do it, is not really going to work. Uh, other parents may say, hey, we're just going to avoid the, the area altogether. We're not going to talk about it with our kids. The assumption is, if we talk about it, maybe it will evoke a curiosity within the kids which will cause them to experiment. But of course, sooner or later, our kids are going to be faced with the issue. And sooner or later, our kids will have to make up their own minds in this area. And if we just avoid the subject now, it's not going to prepare them to make wise choices then. But there is a third way and a better way. And it's this. We need to talk with our kids about it in a frank and an open way. We need to talk to them about what the Bible teaches as we've been doing this morning. They need to understand, hey, it is a good gift of God, but it can be a destructive force in your lives. And therefore, we need to say to them, look, if it's drunk in moderation, that's good. But maybe, but it can be destructive, and maybe just leaving it alone altogether is the better way. And we need to set an example with our own lives. Do they see us living out lives of self-control before them? Do they see us turning to God and not to alcohol in our stresses? Do they see us not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the gospel? Do our kids see us not just seeking our own good, but also the good of others? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that alcohol is a good gift of you. It's part of your creation. But we acknowledge also it's a destructive force. And it's something the devil can use. It's a destructive effect in our lives and in the lives of our families, the lives of our kids. Please, Heavenly Father, help us to be wise in this area. Help us to live lives which truly bring you glory and honor you in every way. Help us to be wise in the way that we manage alcohol. Help us to take an honest look at our lives and to then respond in an appropriate way before you. Give us wisdom to know how to move forward in this area of our lives. So in everything, we do bring you glory. Amen. Our closing song is that beautiful song, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, reminding us that in all we do, we should live lives which are Christ-like, bringing glory to God. Shall we stand?